Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today is the 1st of May. It's International Workers' Day here in Bulgaria. And normally, there would be some kind of demonstration. Uh, there would be some kind of parade or, or some kind of event uh, happening on this day. But I think that the war in Ukraine has complicated things. And I'm not really sure I'm going to wander around today, try to figure out if there's anything going on. There was a pro-Ukrainian uh, demonstration on Thursday. And I'm wondering if the pro-Russian Bulgarians, the sort of pro-Putin crowd will come out in force today. So anyway, it's been a very interesting time to be in Bulgaria on Wednesday, just a few days ago. Gazprom, which is the Russian natural gas company, decided to cut all natural gas exports to Bulgaria and Poland because these countries are refusing Russia's demand to pay in rubles when their contracts were originally denominated in dollars. And so thankfully, the weather here in Sofia is uh, pretty warm and it's only going to get warmer. So the natural gas supply situation hopefully won't be that severe. Uh, the European Union apparently has some reserves that it's saving or it's using to help Poland and Bulgaria. Although forecasters are predicting that gas prices are going to rise another 30, 35% in May, which is pretty awful because right now Bulgarians are struggling with 15% inflation and a lot of people here are really struggling to meet the surging costs for food and electricity and gas and other basic goods. So it's a complicated, it's a complicated time. If you're actually interested in learning more on about my reflections on what's happening in Bulgaria, I just also sent out a newsletter today. I have a episodic newsletter that I send very occasionally as probably even less frequently than I record podcasts. So, um, but I will leave a link in the show notes. If any of you are interested in learning more about the situation in Bulgaria, you can sign up for my newsletter and, and, and get some insights into the way things are sort of shaking down here in Bulgaria, where the population is actually quite divided. Today, I'm going to read for International uh, Workers' Day the first essay in this pamphlet of Alexandra Kollontai's called Women Workers Struggle for Their Rights. I am going to read the first part of The Socialist Movement of Women Workers in Different Countries. Again, this is a, from a pamphlet that Alexandra Kolontai published in 1918, and she is here trying to create some literature for women's activists in Russia, in, in the new worker state, in the new Soviet Union, to discuss the role of an independent women's organization vis-a-vis -vis the wider workers' movement. And I think this is actually a really interesting essay because it's clear that Kolontai herself is struggling with this question of what differentiates 
a women's section within the Communist Party or a women's unit within a wider workers movement from a bourgeois feminist movement or sort of a women's separatist movement. So this is Alexandra Kollontai, the socialist movement of women workers in different countries. One might think that there could be no clearer or more well-defined notion than that of a woman's socialist movement. But meanwhile, it arouses so much indignation, and we hear so often the exclamations and questions, what is a women workers movement? What are its tasks, its aims? Why can't it merge with the general movement of the working class? Why can't it be dissolved in the general movement since the social democrats deny the existence of an independent women's question? Isn't it a hangover from bourgeois feminism? Questions like these are being asked not only in Russia. They are repeated in almost all countries. They can be heard in all languages. But most curious of all, it is where the women workers movement is least developed, where organized women workers are least numerous in the party and in the unions, that one hears loudest and most assured the voices of those who deny the necessity of technically separated work among the women proletariat. And in their simplistic way, they cut through the whole tangled knot of the women's problem and the general social question. The women workers movement literally grew out of the womb of capitalist reality. But for a long time, it advanced tentatively, seeking its way, hesitating in its choice of methods. The women workers movement takes extremely motley and varied forms. These forms vary from country to country. They are adapted to the conditions of the particular place and to the character of the workers movement. But gradually, especially in countries where social democracy has been strong, definite party machines have arisen to serve the women's socialist movement. Today, it would be difficult to find a socialist who would quarrel with the necessity for widespread organization of the female proletariat. Social Democrats in all countries pride themselves on the numbers of their women's army and, in weighing up the chances of success in the class struggle, take into account this rapidly growing force. Consequently, if there is disagreement, it is not about the essence of the question, but merely about methods and means of agitation and work among the female half of the working class. However, in all countries, the vital victory in this argument goes to the defenders of the German way of working the fusion of the male and female halves of the working class in the party organization, while retaining the separation and autonomy of agitation among the women of the working class. The women's socialist movement is still very young. It has only been in existence for some 20 years. It is true that before, workers' organizations, unions, and parties had counted women among their members. But once they had become members of a party or trade union organization, the women workers did not defend those areas which affect women most closely of all. 
This was the situation in Germany up to the middle of the 20s, in England up to the 20th century, and in Russia until the 1905 revolution. The exploration of problems which affected women workers as women and the defense of their interests as mothers and housewives was left without any struggle in the hands of the feminists of the bourgeois camp. The middle of the 90s may be considered a turning point. At the Congress of the Social Democratic Party at Golfa in 1896, and at the insistence of Clara Zetkin, the foundations were laid for a special, separate, autonomous, agitational work among women. In the same year, at the London International Socialist Congress, there took place the first private meeting of 30 socialist women, delegates to the International Congress from England, Germany, America, Holland, Belgium, and Poland. This conference marked the beginning of a modest attempt to bring to life a women's socialist movement in other countries as well. This private meeting was above all concerned to examine the question of the relationship between bourgeois feminism and the socialist women's movement. It acknowledged the necessity of drawing a clear distinction between them and noted the desirability of special socialist agitation among women workers in order to draw them into the ranks of the general class party. Two decades have passed since that time of the first international meeting of socialist women. In those years, capitalism has managed to subject to its rule not only new branches of industry, but also new countries. Female labor in industry has established itself more firmly with every year, acquiring considerable social importance in the life of the people's economy. But since they lacked unity among themselves, were not involved in organizations, and were not linked by obligations to their male colleagues, women workers did indeed appear as dangerous rivals, undermining the progress of the organized struggle of the workers. In those years, the organization of women workers became an urgent and vital question. But in tackling the problem of the organization of the female half of the proletariat and adapting themselves to the conditions of the surrounding social reality, each country solved the problem in its own way. This explains the variety of organizational methods. Women workers joined general mixed unions, organized themselves into separate women's trade unions, founded their clubs and societies for self-education, or finally formed a special women's collective within the party, which undertook the responsibility for agitational and organizational work among women. It is this last type of work which offers the most convenient and efficient way of involving women in the class struggle. And here is a parenthetical from Kolontai herself. One cannot but remark that the trade unions, too, were eventually convinced of the good sense, even on purely economic grounds, of forming their own women's agitational committee for carrying out work among women workers. Thus, for example, from 1895 onwards, the General Commission of the German Trade Unions included a Central Commission for Agitational Work Amongst Women, 
end of parenthetical. By 1907, the women's workers' movement had already assumed such dimensions that it became possible to call the first international women's conference in Stuttgart in connection with the General International Socialist Congress. The women socialists not only exchanged information on what they had achieved in their own countries, but resolved to continue working along the same lines, to promote by all possible means the future growth and development of the women workers' movement. After some disagreement, they accepted a motion introduced by the German women socialists concerning the setting up of a separate international women's bureau, which would strengthen the links between women workers' organizations in all countries. The central organ of the international women workers' movement recognized the newspaper Gleichheit, Equality, published by the German party. The Stuttgart conference consolidated that share of independence which was necessary for further fruitful work among the women proletariat. It emerged quite clearly that although the women proletarian movement is an inseparable part of the general workers' movement, it nevertheless has certain original features of its own. Due to the particular conditions of existence of the woman worker and the particular social and political position of woman in modern society. Although the objectives of agitation, which is aimed specifically at women, correspond to those of the workers' movement at large, and although they constitute one part of an overall objective, Yet, because they are concerned most immediately with the women's interests, they can be best achieved through the initiative of the female representatives of the working class. Although socialists admit that the question of women forms an integral part of the total social problem of our time, although they maintain that the woman worker is above all a member of a class kept in servitude and deprived of rights, and in striving for her own liberation, must, before everything else, fight for the liberation of her entire class. They also, alongside this basic principle, concede another additional proposition. A woman worker is not only a member of the working class, but at the same time, she is a representative of one half of the human race. As opposed to the feminists, the socialists demanding equal rights for women in state and society do not shut their eyes to the fact that women's responsibilities towards the social collective society will always be different to men's. The woman is not only an independent worker and citizen, at the same time she is a mother, a bearer of the future. This gives rise to a whole series of special demands in areas such as women's labor protection, security for maternity and early childhood, help with the problem of children's upbringing, reforms in housekeeping, and so on. And here is yet another parenthetical from Kolontai. Although the interests of the working class as a whole are bound up with bringing about political equality for women workers... Their actual lack of rights, however, even in countries where male workers possess political rights, imposes on the women particularly unpleasant conditions. Joining together in a special collective gives women workers an opportunity to influence their comrades within the party, to inspire and urge them on to the struggle for political rights for the working class women, gaining for women those rights which they themselves possess. End of parenthetical. In addition to this, 
In the majority of countries, the woman worker finds herself both in society and in the state in an exclusively helpless position. Women workers are pariahs, even among the modern slaves of capital. And this outlawing of women gives rise to an inequality in the conditions of living between man and woman, even in the working class itself. Whether in politics, in the family, in relations between the sexes, or in the work situation, the woman is allotted second place. Her lack of rights is underlined by her life itself. It is natural that even the psychology of a woman under the influence of century-long slavery is different from that of a working-class man. The man-worker is more independent, more decisive, has more feeling of solidarity. His horizon is wider because he is not confined within the framework of narrow family relationships. It is easier for him to become aware of his interests and to connect these to class problems. But for a woman worker to reach the maturity of the views of an average male worker, that means a complete break with the tradition, the concepts, the morals, the customs, which have become part of her since the cradle. These traditions and customs, attempting to retain and hold on to a type of woman produced by past stages of economic development, turn into almost insurmountable obstacles in the path of the class consciousness of the woman worker. From this, the conclusion is clear, that one can arouse women's sleeping brain and bring to life her will only by means of a special approach to her only by using specialized methods of work among women. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop right there. And I will pick up with the rest of this essay in the next episode. It's a fairly substantial essay, so it may actually take me a couple more episodes to get through this one. But again, I think it's really interesting that when we think about Kalantai reflecting on the problem of working together in a big, broad coalition with other people who might not necessarily understand or even care about the specific needs of a subgroup within that larger movement, or even worse, as she points out very clearly, that there's this group within the movement, in this case it's women, that are very much seen as second-class members of the movement, their needs and their specific problems and specific issues seem to be devalued in the wider goal of, you know, class struggle. So this tension is, is so, you know, prescient of problems that we continue to have on the left today. And, and as I said in the last episode, I really do think that this problem of respecting difference within a broad coalitionary movement you know, really thinking about Jody Dean's concept of the comrade and how we can link arms with, with other people who may be different from us and have different issues and needs to make us stronger together as a movement without erasing the importance of those differences or the hierarchies that exist within the movement. This seems to me to be an incredible profound challenge that Kolontai was writing about over a hundred years ago, and we still have not yet dealt with completely in this day. It's a, it's a great day to reflect on it because it's International Workers' Day. So 
Happy May Day to everyone out there listening. I, you know, am really grateful for your continued interest in the podcast. And as always, keep up the good fight.